Hi. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Amen. Thank you, team, for that. That was awesome. Great start. Um, just before we go any further, though, I just want to also offer our condolences this morning as a church family to Murray and Trudy Hames on the passing of Murray's dad uh, just yesterday. And so we're feeling their hurt with them, and I trust that uh, as you see them and they're here this morning, that you'll reach out and just share that with that burden with them and and let them know that you're thinking of them and praying for them as they go into this next week ahead and all that that entails. Um, I've never, I don't think, been more frustrated trying to put together a sermon than I have been this week. As we have dove into this next section, or as we're diving into this next section of, of Ephesians, and um, all the significant things that Paul is unpacking for us here and wanting to try and be able to hit on them all, and somehow even to be able to just trace a path through them in some sort of an intelligible way so that we can understand what he's saying and then take something away from this this morning, and it's just been so difficult. Um, and so I, I just want to say up, right up off the front that you, you really need to go back and read this section yourselves and spend some time in this section uh, because we're not going to be able to touch on everything again this morning, and it's such a good section. It's unpacking so many different things, and so don't miss out on anything. Make sure you go back and, and check it out. We're not even going to get to um, speaking about parents and children and, and masters and slaves this morning as we dive into Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 15 and going all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, and so that's where we are this morning. We're in the second last week of our uh, series on the just do it, and it's with an eye towards being doers of the word and not just hearers of the word, that we would be raising up, rising up as God's church, his people, to be doers of the word, that we would be able to be going out and experiencing the fullness of God in our lives, and that we would be then able to testify to that in the world around us, and that God would use us to change life as we know it. For ourselves and for others. And so far, Paul has been talking about a doctrine up to the, the chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, and although there's still doctrine very much involved here as well, he's turned his eye now in chapters 4 to 6 towards a more practical outworking of doctrine in our lives. And to that end, then, Paul has talking, been talking about being unified, that we're to be unified, living humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing lives, all motivated by love. What's more, that we are also to live now as holy people on account of what God has done for us, everything that He has done, and what His intentions and purposes are, that we're to be holy people, turning away from the ways of the world and instead being children of light, producing goodness and righteousness and truth as we go. And now we're going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 15, and we're going to look at verse 15 to verse 21, and then we're going to look at verse 21 through, if you will, to verse, chapter 6, verse 9, although we're not going to get nearly that far. 
So before we go any further, though, would you bow your head with me and let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us. Father, again this morning, once more, we ask for your blessing as we go into your word, that you would unpack it in our hearts and in our minds so that we would understand you better, that we would know you more fully, that we would be able to appropriate for ourselves what you're speaking into our lives through Paul today, that we would be better representatives of you that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers. And so now, God, to that end, we pray and we ask for your blessing and we ask it all according to Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to start with verses 15 to 17. If you don't have your Bibles with you, feel free to follow on the screens. Verses 15 to 17, chapter 5. Be very careful then, Paul says, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And as we hit those couple of verses, we have to stop right away and understand what Paul is saying. That we have to be careful this morning to understand what Paul means by careful. As Paul says, be very careful to us. He's saying this. He's saying, make sure that what you're about to do is done accurately and precisely after paying close attention. That what you're about to do as you go into your life, as you live this life, that you need to do it accurately and precisely. Which is to say that there's room for error here. There's margins that we don't want to deviate into. And so pay close attention. Examine it carefully. And then proceed with accuracy and precision. Carrying on now, he still has this idea of living worthy lives in mind that's still well in view. And he implores us to be very careful in how we live that we would live wisely and not foolishly. And as is so typical of Paul, he's not content to just leave us to dream up our own definition of living wisely. He's not going to just leave that to any random interpretation. So he sets out to help us understand what that entails. And he points us to three key aspects this morning. Three key aspects of living wisely. First, that we would be good stewards of our time. Secondly, that we would be in pursuit of God's will. And thirdly, that we would be filled by the Spirit. Now, stewardship of our time is an area that I would submit this morning, we have all but conceded as people today. We manage our time to some extent in terms of trying to make sure that we fit in all the things that we feel that we need to be involved in and accomplish. But stewarding our time, I think, is another question that we have largely abdicated. Today, we seem no more in control of our time and where it's being channeled 
than a chuck wagon driver that's lost the reins. The crowd's cheering, everybody's yelling, the other wagons are racing hard, and we're hanging on for dear life to nothing but the wagon seat, hoping that somehow we're going to get around this track. And if possible, that we would be the ones that would be out in front by the time we get to the end. Life is driving us, I would submit, more than we are driving it. And that's a problem. Because Paul says that these days is evil. As we look at our lives this morning, I don't think it takes very long for us to see how we're being driven. Our jobs drive us more than not. Our desires drive us. Our kids drive us. Our desires for our kids drive us. And we shake our heads as though there's nothing that we can do. Well, what, what can I do? This is just life as we know it. When in fact, I think this morning that we're really more satisfied with this option than we are interested in trying to change it. That we're more content to run this race in the middle of a pack, hell-bent for leather, without any hands on the reins. Hoping that we can just run a little bit faster and come in first somehow. And the result is this. That in our mission to live wealthy lives, it's taking us away from our mission to live worthy lives. And in our desire to live happy lives, it is undermining us in our mission to live holy lives. So in the end, much as we convince ourselves, or at least try to convince ourselves, and I think largely succeed, that we're living wise lives, as much as we try and convince ourselves that that's where we're at, we're living unwise lives. And this morning, I understand I'm not blind to the implications of what I'm saying today. I'm not up here just shooting off willy-nilly. I recognize that there are some big implications from stepping back and examining our lives to see if we're living worthy and holy lives or not. And that may well and should, in fact, precipitate some difficult decisions for you and me. 
Are our jobs actually demanding too much of our time and attention? And am I, am I willing to do something about that? Would, would I trust God in this enough to make a change? Do I feel that this level of income and creature comfort that I am at is really necessary? Is my pleasure time prioritized too highly? How much am I spending in time, energy, and money on my hobbies? My interests? What movies, television shows, books, video games am I indulging in on a regular basis? And where is that taking me? What is that accomplishing for me? Good or bad? And the list goes on. And unfortunately, we don't have time to stop and unpack that any further this morning. I'm going to leave that with you now. It's bad preaching, Doug. Bad preaching. That's where we're at today. And though we might prefer to stop this morning, actually just to stop and walk away at this point. Paul doesn't. He's not content to. He carries on, and so let's try and keep up. And he points to the fact that Living wisely is now to pursue God's will. It's not just managing our time, it's pursuing God's will. Managing our time to pursue God's will. If you will. By definition, God's will is wise. Everything that, God's will, everything that God wills is wise. And therefore, whatever is outside of God's will is automatically definite definitively foolish. So understanding God's will is extremely important for us today. We need to understand His will because that's wise. And in not understanding His will and thereby maybe missing His will, that's foolish, which is contrary to what we're called here by Paul. Peter O'Brien makes a very important point here with respect to understanding the will of God. And again, we could, we could stop and we could unpack this for a while, but I'm going to leave you with this one idea of Peter O'Brien's this morning and let you chew on that. O'Brien contends that God's will is first to be understood in these three terms. Number one, that God's will is to create a new humanity. We've seen that now. We've been talking about that. That His purpose and plan is to create this new one humanity in Him. That we're to be unified and holy under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And O'Brien submits that because we know that to be God's will, that that is His plan, then that, that, that for us every day, you and I, we are to be appropriating that in our lives day by day by day by day. That we know that to be God's will in our lives. 
And we're, therefore, we should be dialed in on it. Number two, that it's God's will that we would live properly. That our conduct would be acceptable to Him. And again, that that would play out day by day in you and me. And thirdly, that the will of God is for us to become like Jesus Christ in our character. So that we would be coming, be, becoming more like Him day by day in His character. We tend to reduce God's will to His specific plan for us in the unknowns. We go to God looking for His will in what I should do for a career, what I should do for schooling, where I should go to college, Bible college, university, what have you. We go to God and ask Him about who should I marry. I hope we go to God and ask Him about that. I'm going to talk about that in a couple minutes. We go to God and ask Him about things like, well, what house should I buy? Etc., etc. And we're, we're f- fine. We're good to go to Him on those, that one-dimensional level, if you will, for those things. And we should go to Him on all of those things. Not disputing that. But O'Brien says that we should be going to Him on the first three first before we get to the fourth. And we omit that. We take the known will of God in our lives and we ignore that. And then we go to Him for the unknown things of our lives and expect that He's going to just sort of lean into that and say, well, here you go. And O'Brien submits that that's perhaps folly. It's at best a mistake. But it could take us actually down some really, really bad roads if we don't understand what we're trying to unpack there, and if we're not able to perceive God's will actually as He outlines it for us, as He speaks into it, because we haven't become acquainted with Him and what He's all about in the core, if that makes sense. If we've missed Him here, well then, how much more easily could we miss Him over here? So O'Brien would say this morning, and I would, I would stand with him, that we need to pursue God in those known areas of his will first, and then also, as well, pursue him in those unknown areas of our lives. And he will guide us there as well. As we've demonstrated our interest in knowing his will in the ways that we already know that we're to pursue it. Last thing Paul says about living wise lives lives, is that living wisely is being filled by the Spirit. And here again, this is an interesting point that we could unpack for a number of hours. Just in and of itself. Man, I'm telling you, we've got to get better at planning messages, series. I'm a little obtuse 
when I look at this and say, yeah, let's give that a crack. We'll take that section on in this one week. <laughs> Think I can handle that? Oh, brother. Paul says that living wisely is being filled by the Spirit. And what he's driving at here is that we would live by the Spirit continuously. That that would be the regular, typical mode that we operate from. Filled by the Spirit. Which is to say that then on our part, that we would do all we can to engage with the Spirit as He turns us into the likeness of Jesus. That we would just lean into that whole process. And that we would not grieve Him in that objective as we saw back in chapter 4, verse 30. We didn't have a time, time to talk about it then. But I bring it up again now just to remind you and hope again that you've been reading that we can grieve the Holy Spirit in His effort to turn us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And already some of us are arguing, right? You're arguing. How can we overcome the Holy, the Holy Spirit? There's no way that we can overcome the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit wants, the Holy Spirit gets. And that's very true. But there's a very distinct difference in how we get there. You've been in a market, supermarket, where the family's out and there's one little hellion that wants his way. And mom or dad decides, nope, that's not the way it's going to be. And ultimately, I guess he goes home in the car. I'm going to put my money on mom or dad. But sometimes it ain't pretty. Because he's going kicking and screaming. He's making all kinds of a nightmare. It's a complete, unadulterated disaster, right? He's just melting down. And we need to look at ourselves every once in a while and recognize that sometimes we're that kid. That we're not going into this objective of becoming like Jesus nicely. That we're kicking and screaming. That we're throwing a tantrum. We're having a hernia on this whole effort. And Paul's saying that's no good. Every day we need to be leaning into this that we would be continually filled with the Spirit day by day so that He could walk us through this process so that we could become the people that we want to be and the people that we recognize that we should be for the most part. The people I think that we really want to be. But struggle because of this carnal nature that's still plaguing us. This process of being filled by the Spirit is, is a process. There's a progression here. It's not like it just happens when we're converted. Yes, indeed, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence within us, but we are not completely filled and saturated. And Pastor Ta has this great analogy. I was going to do it, but we don't have time. So I'm going to walk you through it really fast. If you take some quick and you pour it into a glass of milk, you see... You know that Nestle's quick? You, you guys hear what I'm saying? Is anybody listening? 
Yeah, okay, you're, you're tracking with, okay. You pour it into a glass of milk. What happens? It goes to the bottom. Is it in the glass? Absolutely, it's in the glass. Has it filled the glass? Not at all. It's there. But we need to stir that stuff up because all we, what we got is we got some really dark chocolate at the bottom and we got white on top. And our job, yours and my job, is to take the Holy Spirit who's at the, in, in residence in our lives and it's to be stirred up in our lives so that it changes the color of our lives, that he, so that he revolutionizes our lives. And we gotta, we gotta stir that every day. Every day we gotta stir that. Sometimes we gotta stir that multiple times a day. Ask Fran. About me. Let's just be clear. So we've gotta lean into this process of being filled by the Spirit. So the wise live every day working to have the Holy Spirit fill them and change them. Verses 18 to 20 then continue to unpack a little bit what that looks like, what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me just run through that really quickly for us today. People are edified and, oh my heavens, People are edified and God is praised. That's one. God is worship, number two. There's ongoing thankfulness in God's people that are filled by the Spirit. And it's expressed to God through Jesus Christ. Which brings us now to verse 21. 21 rounds out this, the last part of this section, but it also, at the very same time, introduces us to the next section. It's this transitional verse. It's huge. It's significant. It says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the last result, if you will, of being filled by the Spirit, at least the last result in this list of Paul's right here in Ephesians 5, is that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How are we doing on that? that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's another picture of what it means to have the Holy Spirit filling us. The topic of submission now on the table, Paul delves into three specific areas of relationship where he calls for submission from us, from his people. First of all, from wives with respect to their husbands. And in children's and slaves' obedience to their parents and masters. I was hoping we might not even get this much time. Back. I'm, I'm going to have to push forward. Back, you know, back to where it says, I urge you to, to use your time wisely. There's, there's an element there. There's an element. There's a, a, a thought. A I'm off my notes now. I'm just resigned. We're going to be late. Oh, well, a few of you laughed. That's so good. All right, so anyways, there's an element there. Really quickly, there's an element there that, that it means to buy back, find a way to buy time. And if you go back to the Old Testament, they're called Chaldeans. We're, we're trying to buy time before they, they were going to be wrecked, right? Okay, and so that, that same verb is used there. I, I want to buy a little bit more time before I die now. Take a little bit of time, because we're going to dive into this whole business of women and 
wives and, and husbands. It's been nice knowing you. All right. The verb translated here as submit means literally to arrange under. And the predominant idea being conveyed here by Paul is the idea of order, the concept of order. So things are to be arranged under with the concept of order in mind. One commentator offers the insight that it is often referred to the submission of someone in an orderly way. So it often refers to the submission of someone in an orderly way, to another person who is above the first in some regard. So for example, in the case of a soldier submitting to a superior officer. <laughs> All right. Already the girls are saying, oh, 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 oh. superior officer, my patootie. <laughs> okay. That's where Paul's driving. That there would be an orderly submission in a, a nice, structured way. Already some of us listening here this morning online are offended. The topic of submission triggers a lot of people nowadays. I don't have to tell you that. You're sitting beside somebody right now. What's more? Others are already convinced that we're embarking down this stereotypically religious road of subjugation, exploitation, and oppression. That that's what all organized religion is about. Subjugation. Exploitation. Oppression. Right? That our faith is the concoction of a bunch of sexists, a bunch of chauvinists, misogynists, or at least, at the very least, it's been hijacked by a bunch of them. And let me just point out right off the hop, as we're talking already, and some of the hackles are already up. Number one, I would submit this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate emancipator, not oppressor. You cannot look at Jesus Christ's life and not see him being an emancipator, come to set us free, not to oppress us. And that includes for every man, woman, and child, regardless gender, sex, race, whatever. Jesus Christ is no oppressor. Number two, I would submit to you this morning that we have just spent considerable time in this series where we have been considering that we are to become one people, united, undivided, and equal before God. We're to be one new humanity. So God isn't now all of a sudden deciding to throw a bunch of distinctions and divisions in in order to create some sort of a class or hierarchy. Not at all. So I would say let's stick around and see what Paul has to say here this morning. And maybe, maybe we can learn something as we go through this. 
few things off the top. First of all, Paul is speaking to these specific relationships, not categorically. So what I mean by that is, for example, authority has been granted to the husband over the wife within the institution of marriage. So that does not mean, that does not mean that we can extrapolate to say that women are to submit to men. Can't walk away making that assertion today. That's wrong. Completely off, off base. Nor can we walk away saying that wives have to submit to any husband. Try and take that kind of an angle or mis- distortion. So you and I are to apply this instruction in the context of the specific relationship to which it is addressed as those relationships apply to you and I today. Secondly, Authority is not analogous with oppression. Much as our world has tried to beat that drum and redo the definition along those lines, it's not true. Authority is not analogous to oppression. And in fact, what we're going to see here is that each party, in every respect, and though, even though we don't get to get, go into them all, I encourage you, Go and read it and find it to be true. Each party is addressed independently and with equal status. Which is to say that wives, children, and slaves, and husbands, fathers, and masters, all, all of us, have responsibilities before God. And at the very same time, all are equally accountable in our responsibilities. And as we'll see, as you'll see, as you get to chapter 6, verse 9, God has no favorites. What's more, as John Stott points out, although authority is clearly implied in these relationships, there's no doubt about it, and he's not trying to hide it or dodge it, never once are husbands, parents, and masters to exercise, told to exercise their authority. That is not the point of this passage. Paul's not saying, hey boys, get out there and ride it. Leverage it, use it, subjugate. It's not it at all. As a matter of fact, for their part, those quote-unquote in authority are warned against the misuse of their authority. That's what Paul speaks into their lives in this passage. And lastly, I would submit this morning that we're to keep in mind that submission here is not unreserved. Which is to say that our submission is to be exercised only to the point where, that is what, where what is being required and or prohibited contravenes God's commands. As we cross that line, regardless of our relationship, now we're to conscientiously object. All right? So let's quickly, quickly dive into this area of husbands and wives. First thing I want to just point out, Paul speaks roughly 40 words to the, to the women and 120 to the guys. I thought it was just that women were chatty. But I'm beginning to think that maybe it is actually that we just don't pick it up very quick. So we've got to hear it more often. Hear it a little bit 
more repetitively. So three to one words for us boys in this whole deal. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's good, Bob. No amen there. Okay. So here we go. First of all, the wife's submission is to be understood as ultimately to the Lord. So ladies, as you're submitting to your husband, you see right through him and you see Jesus behind him. And as you submit to your husband, you're submitting to God himself. Amen to that. This holds true actually in every respect. Not just for the ladies, but for us to one another, as we're told earlier, chapter 20, or verse 21, that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then as, as children are to obey their parents in the Lord, and as slaves are to obey their, their masters as they would Christ. So ladies, our submission is first of all to Jesus. Secondly, your submission is to be voluntary. In the Greek, this is called for in the middle voice, which is to say it's something that should be offered. It's not being demanded. It's what should be offered as a willful act by you to your husbands. And that is the kind of submission that Jesus demonstrated for us, modeled for us with the Father as He submitted to the will of the Father Himself. Not my will be done, but yours. In that then, in that, then we understand that there is no inferiority in the, in, in the woman. Just as there is no inferiority before, of, of Jesus before God. So there's, this isn't an inferiority thing. But at the same time, ladies, it has to be also understood that this is not a performance-driven thing either. That is, he toes the line, meets the standard, then I will submit. Nope. Regardless of how well or how badly he's doing, that's your, submit, your, that's your offering to Jesus in your relationship that you would submit. Now in these verses here too, we must take some time to understand the, the husband's headship. This is really interesting because Paul just announces it here. He speaks to it as a fact. So the husband's headship in marriage is stated explicitly, but it is, and, and, and you can see that actually in, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 12, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13. So I would encourage you to go home and check that out. So it's stated emphatically, and it is also stated from creation. So Paul points out that the, 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 origin, the origin of this idea, this concept, this structure is creation in itself, which is to say then that we can't write this passage off as cultural. Or that, oh, this was the cultural thing of the day. 
That's what, the way it worked back then. So Paul's just speaking to the culture. Now we're not in that culture. Now I don't have to submit. It was founded in creation. It's been established, therefore, by God. But while it's based in creation, it is to be understood now by virtue of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. Which reminds us then to go back to chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And there it talks about the head of the church, Jesus. And it says this about him. That from the head, the whole body is nourished and grows. So the, whole, the, the headship of the husband over the wife, if you will, is all in order to, to nourish her and grow her. That's the perspective. That's the context that we're to understand for this responsibility, this hierarchy, this whatever you want to call it, the structure of this relationship. That we're there, guys, to nourish the girls so that they will thrive and grow. But what's more, Paul packs on this, tacks on this little addendum at the end that Christ is not only the head of the church, but he is also its savior. Which Stott submits that the characteristic of his headship then is not so much lordship as it is saviorhood. So again, we see here that we're not to lord this over the girls, our position. And though this doesn't make us saviors because there's only one savior, that's Jesus Christ. So we can't pretend like we're supermans flying into save the day. We're not the Savior here. But we're not the Lord. And what we are to be doing is we're to be coming into their lives day by day, bringing them life, not sucking life out of the girls. Okay, we gotta, oh, we've got to really, really fly. Okay, I'm going to try and do this. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, sorry, make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. So again, husbands are to love their wives now. That's the reciprocal to their submission. Here too, this is to be offered voluntarily, guys. But here Paul points now to Jesus as our model men. As such, our love is to be demonstrated tangibly in giving of ourselves up in sacrifice for our wives. And that our goal then should be to bring them life even if it costs us our physical life just as Jesus gave up his life for the church. So that rather than sucking the life out of them, that we should be sucking the life of, out of ourselves as we lay it down for them so that they can realize their identity and their true purpose in God. There's a sense here of us helping our wives come into their own 
that we would facilitate them in fully discovering who they are and who they were created to be by God. There's a mission for us guys every day. Go home and do that for your wives, your spouses, for your girlfriends as you embark on this whole thing. So as we see then, as we see that God is calling us to submit to one another, and particularly within the specific areas of these relationships, we see that it isn't merely due to some arbitrarily, arbitrarily legislated design or structure, but rather that God has a purpose in mind in all of these relationships, that he is using them for his intentions and purposes and that there are within them benefits for you and I. They help us to grow into this new humanity that we're called to be a part of. They help us to be holy. They help us to be united. They help us to grow into His fullness and to mature and to expand the body. But they also do this. They also serve for us today as a stage where we will represent Jesus to the world around us one way or another. Our relationships with our spouses, our relationships with our families, our kids, our relationships with our bosses and our employees are stages in each one of our lives where we demonstrate to the world around us if we're part of this new humanity or not. We're just like them. No different. God's given us a platform, not only where we can, where we can benefit from these things personally, but where we can be of benefit to everyone around us as we demonstrate a different way to live life wisely, not foolishly. I wish, I wish, so wish that we could go into the significance of marriage here this morning and what God intends for it. Like, I mean, just unpacking this is so, so mind-blowing. And it undermines over and over why it is so important for us to be equally yoked. Whereas we come together and pick a spouse, that we would pick somebody that's on the same page as we are spiritually speaking so that we can grow in this together and so that these relationships can actually accomplish exactly what God intended for us in them and through them. We'll come to that another time, I trust. For today, and I'm sorry that we are so over time, let's not miss the benefit that God's given us in this or the opportunity. Let's go out and rock these relationships. And how are we going to do that? By the power of God. Okay, got to, we've got to get on board with this there. <laughs> Only way this happens is by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, today, would you now go with us? Would you come by your Spirit in power and fill us? that we would be able to go out and that we would be revolutionized in our relationships, that we would live wise lives, not foolish lives, so that we would be able to benefit as 
you've intended from these relationships and those so that we would be a testimony to the world around us. And we, to that end, pray these things now and ask all this according to Jesus Christ and for his sake alone. Amen. See you tonight with Giesbrecks. It's going to be awesome.